All right, everybody. Good to see you guys. How are you guys? Everybody good? One by one. Back to the book of Ephesians, of course, as we continue going through our section here of practical theology, using Ephesians as our paradigm. I don't really know of a book quite like what we're doing. Uh, I looked high and low for um, some sort of textbook on practical theology, and it's the the uh, material out there is actually quite limited. Uh, either they focus on just one section of practical theology, maybe the family, maybe marriage, maybe finances, maybe something like that, but there's really nothing comprehensive uh, that includes the total, I guess what we could say, the whole Christian life. What's that? Like yeah, I know, right? More work. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. I definitely, I would love to, you know what I mean? Everything I write as far as my notes, uh, I write it with kind of a, a book structure in mind. And so, not everything turns into a book, obviously, but I, I do it that way so I can at least save myself some time if I want to end up doing something with it. So, well, let's see what happens. But for today, let's pray one more time. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together, and then we will begin, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we acknowledge that uh, you are so merciful. Uh, and then on top of that, Lord, not only are you merciful to us, uh, Father, but you are also faithful to us. And uh, Lord, you supply our every need according to your riches and glory. And Lord, we know that you supply supremely for us in our spiritual needs. And uh, Lord, that really is what this book is telling us, is that just as uh, Peter says, Lord, you've given us all things for life and godliness. And so we thank you, Lord, for the sufficiency of the faith. We thank you for the explanatory power of Christianity, that it informs every aspect of our life. And we pray that it would do that, that we, that we would have a well-rounded world and life view. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us develop that even in a classroom setting like this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we are in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7. And so chapter 4, verse 7 through uh, 11 is, I think, where we're, where we're going to stop. Yeah, that's right. And I want to talk about just a few things regarding this passage that, remember where, where we're at. What we're saying is that chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, in terms of practical theology, deals with what? The unity of the church, right? And so we are just seeing different aspects of that unity here. And in terms of this passage of Scripture, we're really dealing with what we can call unity of gifts, right? Uh, or something like that, because that's really what we're dealing with here. Let's read the passage together, okay? Verses, beginning verse 7. This is what the Word of God says. It says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, <clears throat> When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some 
apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Now, I stop there because we're going to really look at the next section of this dealing with a, a different aspect of unity, and we'll talk about service and whatnot. But I really want to focus just in terms of the gifts and the gift giver itself. And so the first thing to notice about this passage is what we could call the diversity, the diversity of gifts, right? I mean, that's what it says. Look at the language. But to each one, um, that language there is uh, distributive in, 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 in the grammar. In other words, it's saying that each individual person has been allocated a certain gift by God. Um, what is the purpose of that gift, regardless of what it is? The purpose of that gift is for the overall edification of the church. But I want to point something out about the just the nature of this context and how the gifts, at least here, are operating in the broader section of 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 uh, one through sixteen. <clears throat> I want you to notice that what is primary in the gifts that are being sort of kind of focused on here is, I guess what we could call, theological maturity. Uh, look at verse 14 with me, because this is sort of some, this is kind of like part of the effect of what does it mean to have these gifts operating in the church? You know, what is it for? What do they do? Right? Look at what it says. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And then, of course, it goes on to say we speak the truth in love, which just kind of reinforces the emphasis on theology, on truth, right? It is a sort of a propositionally filled gift, right? Because that's what these gifts are for. It's for the dispensation of truth. Uh, that's At least that's the focus in this section here, he's not talking about his focus is not so much, let's say, the um, the charismata of First Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. That's not really his emphasis here as much as uh, showing that, like, what is what is foundational and what is seminal for the growth of the church. You, can, you know what I mean by that? What is foundational? Well, we know what foundational is because he tells us if you just go back. Uh, a second, you go back to uh, chapter 2, for example. Um, he kind of said that already. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, keep in mind, when we go back and forth into Ephesians, just remember how the indicative and the imperative kind of inform each other here, right? So chapter 2, verse 20, having been built on the foundation, there's a foundational aspect of the church, the apostles and the prophets, right? And... Uh, I'll make the case, and you guys can look into it later, but um, the word order here, most commentators have pointed out that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and what he means there is uh, New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament. So that's not his way of saying Old Testament, New Testament. No, he's talking about the church, and what, that's why he puts prophets after apostles, which is kind of strange if he's trying to be chronological, right? You would think Old Testament prophets, then New Testament apostles, but that's not, he doesn't have that in mind. He has in mind, really, the New Covenant Church built upon the foundation of the apostles and the early church prophets that were circulating at that time. Uh, that's, anyway, that's my position. That's the position, I think, of most um Commentaries that get it right. Anyway, it's just 
Now, again, this is stressing the fact that to each one of us, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That means that every single believer has some sort of gifting that has been given to him according to the the, the measure of the of, of Christ's gift, which is a really interesting thing, right? So what is that saying there when it says <clears throat> to each one is given according to the measure of Christ's gift? Several things. Number one, of course, what it's saying is that Christ is sovereign over who he gives what he gives to or what, what he gives them, right? So this is kind of like maybe a parallel passage in First uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, I think it's in verse seven, where it says that the Spirit, right, ultimately gives to whom He wills, right, the the the, the charismatic gifts, right. So here we're being told that Christ is sovereign over who is gifted with what. I want you to really think about that, right. Uh, and then also when He says according to the measure of Christ's gift, what does that mean? I think what that means is that Christ is not only sovereign over who gets what, but Christ is sovereign is how much you get, right? Um, I guess take a pastor, for example. I was thinking of different examples to use on this. Okay, I just I guess I use myself. But there's a reason why God gave me a measure of pastoral gifting. He didn't give me the same measure that he gave, let's say, Spurgeon. I wish he did. Man, I, you know, sometimes I have delusions of grandeur and then I come down to reality and it's like, okay, I'll never be Spurgeon. Okay. No one will ever be Spurgeon. But you know what I mean? Uh, God decides who he is going to enlist, let's say, in the role of a pastor and how gifted they will be in that ministry. You know what I mean? Same thing with you. Uh, regardless of what your gifting is, uh, what, how this sort of leads right into the unity of the church, is that you're not really responsible for the gift that you got. You see what I'm saying? You're not in charge of that. You didn't get saved and, I, and then say to yourself, you know, I think I'll take this one, <laughs> right? Uh, that is something that God either gave you or he didn't give you. I mean, think especially of the early church as God is dispensing uh, these uh, gifts, or I would say probably especially in the early church when they were really prominently operating, let's say, in Corinth, Right, somebody was already singled out as the healer of the church. He had the gift of healing. He didn't work for that. He didn't. He didn't manufacture that. He didn't decide one day. You know what? I think I'll be the healer. You know what I mean, God is the one that did that. Same thing with the person who had the gift of prophecy, or the gift of tongues, or the gift of interpretation. They were not sovereign over those things. God was. Right? How do you think that that kind of promotes unity uh, in the church? Maybe not. Let's just you know, maybe not the use of tongues in the church. That, that, that often doesn't promote unity. <laughs> that often destroys a church. But anyway, we won't go there. But yeah, it helps us depend on one another. Okay. Because God has given you everything you need. Mm. Um, a better human, worship more, learn more, <clears throat> more even. It's not all. Very good. I, I think that's a great that's a great point. Kate up. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things I had down is that it should humble us to know that if we are in fact not in charge 
of what gifts we get and the measure of gift that we get, right, then we should really not be envious of each other. You know what I mean? Like, I'm getting ready to go to the Shepherds Conference with John MacArthur. And do you understand how blessed John MacArthur's ministry was? Well, I guess as part of that we can say, well, eternity will reveal that, right? But, but there was a, there was a season in John MacArthur's pastorate in the early 80s, I think late 70, early 80s, his church was doubling every year from 200 to 400, from 400 to 800, from 800 to 1600 members every year his church was doubling. And we may be tempted as, you know, you know, uh, maybe pastors of small churches, which we don't have a small church, by the way. Small church is technically 25 members, right? So we have actually a pretty big church here, right? And, but, but think about that. Like, you know, pastors, you know, they have all this ministry idolatry in their heart. You know, they want all this, you know, they want the numbers, they want the ties to go up, they want the influence, you know, all of this. And how easy it is for us to sit there at the Shepherds Conference and look around and go, oh wow, gee, I wish we had a church like this. Look at this place, you know? It's, look how vast this place is, right? That's not up to us, you know? Um, and my wife likes to quote, uh, I forgot who it was, I think it was D.L. Moody, who said, you know, my church is so small, doctor, was it Moody? Sure. <laughs> At least you get it right. <laughs> I don't know, though, right now with your preg- pregnant brain, I don't, be careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. How long is it going to take John MacArthur to give it? I mean, he'll be there all day. <laughs> At least I'll go quick. You know what I mean? I'll go quick. <laughs> so, Marshall. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. And really, guys, you know, like even when I was putting this lesson together, um, you know, in practical theology, I thought, you know, all these texts, you know, there's all these debated issues in these texts. I'm really trying to avoid that, which is really hard for me because my, my natural tendency is to go to everything controversial and try to hammer it out. But you know what I mean? But I'm really trying to stay off of that, you know what I mean? And focus on, because how ironic, right? Like here we are talking about church unity and I'm going to bring in some divisive point in the text. You know? <laughs> so, But you know what I mean? I, I, I really want to just focus on the things in the passage that unifies us. I mean, just like the uh, if Ephesians goes on to talk about Christ, you know, going down to the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? Well, there's huge exegetical debates on that. You know what I mean? I simply believe that means he came to earth. I don't think that that's just speaking of his condescension. I don't think that means he went down into Hades and Abraham's bosom and all of that. That's I don't take that position. But anybody else? I thought I saw some hands. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a really good point because what that means, I mean, there's kind of like an equilibrium here, right, where it, it doesn't matter what gift you have, 
right? Like First Corinthians 12 talks about the more prominent gifts and the less prominent or the more prominent parts of the body, less prominent parts of the body, right? But it really doesn't matter what gift you really have. You know, overall, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a mature Christian, you know? And I, you know, and again, I'm going to violate my own principle here for a second, but, but a lot of times in charismatic churches, like Pentecostal type churches, you know, it's whoever speaks in tongues and prophesies. They're the real spiritually mature people in the church. They're like the prophets walking around. You know what I mean? And it's like you can't question them, you know, because the minute you question them, they get a word from God and tell you not to question them. You know what I mean? So it's like, but a lot of times people will slip into this rut of just because you, you, you have, let's say, a more prominent or more evident gift, right? That doesn't automatically mean that you are the more mature Christian among us. You know what I mean? You could, you could get up and preach and teach and, and you can speak in tongues, let's say, or whatever, you know, and, and, and yet your house is in shambles. Right? You're not raising your kids right. Your finances are in shambles. You have a terrible witness at work. Who cares what you're doing, you know, in terms of the context of using a, some spiritual gift? That means nothing. Right. In the grand scheme of things. Right. We want to see lives of principled obedience. That to me is maturity. What's mature to me is somebody who lives a principled life of obedience, who who does what's right in order to please God. That blesses God. Right. Um, just that staunch devotion that that that, you know, that man or that woman who's just devoted to, you know, leading their home and taking them to church and serving the Lord. And, and just there they are every year. There they are plugging away. You know what I mean? That's that's really great. I'm sorry. Landon, did you have? Then I'll get you, Keith. I think that in a sense, a lot of churches that we see in the area probably don't have a right view of themselves, uh, who they are in Christ. Um, like in uh, First, in First Corinthians twelve fourteen says, "For the body is not one member, but it is many members." Yep. So, they, so it was to the exclusion of the weaker members. <clears throat> should the eye not say to the foot, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like you see this in a lot of churches where like people really don't know who they are in Christ or. The, the gifts that Christ has given them because the, their pastor is like the one member who means something to mm-hmm. a lot of people. And, um, and, uh, and so a lot of times you don't see that church working as, a, as, an, as an organic body that, that actually has, uh, that knows who it is in Christ, the gifts that they're able to do with true unity in them. Right. But they're all dependent upon the pastor. They all take their friends. They don't share the gospel with them, but they, right. when you say you to church, so that my pastor uh-uh. can share the gospel with you. But the, but it says the body is not one member, right? But yeah. many members. Uh, right. So I think that that's Amen. Yeah, man. Keith? Yeah, um, is Romans 12, uh, 3, tie into what Kato was saying. It says, uh, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not think more highly of himself. Yeah. Keep, yeah, that's right. Keep reading that, yeah. That's perfect, right? That's exactly what we're saying. I mean, let's focus on that verse for a second, right? It says, for, for through the grace given to me, I say to every... And look at how he starts it, right? Through the grace given to me. I mean, so Paul understands even his authority as an apostle is a gift of grace, right? He's not speaking on his own authority. I mean, this is what's been given to him, allocated to him by the Lord. And he says, <clears throat> he says, uh, I say to everyone among you, Notice that, everyone, every part of the body, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So that's very important because, you know, like, uh, just because you think you're teaching, 
that somehow makes you a more, you know, a more important person in the church. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we just, we just had a, um, real quick, Romans 12, 3. I just, you know, was really blessed to have a, a membership meeting with a family in our church. And I discerned that, you know, this sister was, um, kind of overwhelming herself with, I'm not doing enough. I don't know that I'm gifted enough. I don't know that I can talk the theology like all the other ladies or all the other people in the church type of thing. And when I told her that, in fact, if you just read Titus chapter 2, that for you to be a godly mother and a godly wife is a ministry to the Lord, she got emotional because she thought, I thought that was like not important. You know, I thought what was really important is whether or not I can, you know, talk all the doctrine with everybody, right? And she's like, no, the Apostle Paul is the complete opposite. You know what I mean? Like, this is your sphere of life, is your, your husband, your home, your children, and that is real ministry. That is not insignificant in the eyes of God. You know what I mean? Uh, we're getting ready to celebrate, you know, the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. One thing that Luther did, one thing that Luther really obliterated was this distinction of the Catholic Church between the sacred and the secular, right? Where they they taught, no, 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 unless you're in the priesthood and unless you're operating in the church, everything else is sort of just secular, mundane, and unimportant. It's a secondary thing. Luther said, no, 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 Romans chapter 12, all of life is sacred to the Lord. All of life should be worship to the Lord. You know. So anyway, I'm sure he did. He was one of, he was right there with Luther. They agreed on. The, they would definitely agree on that. You know what I mean? They bring up the Lord's Supper. They might disagree. You know. But anyway, Jesse. Yeah, it's supposed to be writing English. <laughs> the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's only for the mature. The descent of the giver. Yeah, that's right. I just made a mental note so that I wouldn't get so far off track. But yeah, because obviously that's where Ephesians. So let's, did any, anybody have something else on that? Anybody have something else? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I picked up the guitar for the first time. I was a young Christian, and my, I tortured my parents, you know, bang, banging away on that guitar, <laughs> pretending to sing, you know, <laughs> like a howling cat in the night, you know. Anyway, um, I became really good friends uh, with a, a with a guy who was, who was a professional worship leader. I mean, his worship was, I still think he's one of the best I've ever heard. And I wanted so bad to play and sing just like him. And no matter what I did, I could not do it. <laughs> it no, I mean, I would practically bleed trying to play the guitar so so much that so no matter what I did, it's like, 
I will never be that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I remember I, one time I went through a depression over the whole thing. I had a $1,000 guitar. I gave it away. I was so upset. I was just like, here, you take it. I don't, ever, I don't want to touch a guitar ever again. You know what I mean? And that was wrong of me because I should have just accepted, hey, man, that guy is gifted by the Lord in a certain way. You will never be that guy. Just let it go. You know what I mean? <laughs> and eventually I did. I kind of came back and there was this whole spiritual journey that I will not bore you with. But um, any other question on that? Anybody ever gone through something like that? I mean, you know, it's, it's real, right? I mean, we, we sometimes we we covet each other's gifts or you know, or, or even we covet each other's spiritual walk. We think, right? But as we learned from Ephesians the other day, right? What does it say? You know, lay aside the every encumbrance and the sin that so easily ensnares you. Everyone is still, you know, battling the remnants of indwelling sin. So, you know, don't ever think more highly. Perfect verse, Keith. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because we usually have it backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Um, I guess we should look at this part too. You know, um, the reason why, why do you think the Apostle Paul brings in this section? Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, isn't that interesting? Christ gifts us the measure of Christ's gift, right? Um, and there it's not charismata, it's, uh, Dore, uh, what is it? What's the Greek word for that? Dora, what is it? Dorea, and it's a little bit, little bit different, but it emphasizes a bit of a different thing. But what, what do you? Why do you think the Apostle Paul inserted this? Therefore, it says. And by the way, where is he quoting from? Psalm sixty-eight. That's right. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Um, now, again, even though we want to focus on the practical, there is a textual issue here because if you read the Hebrew text or just go back to your Old Testament text, it says that he didn't give gifts to men, but that he um, received gifts, right? So that's really interesting because on the one hand, right, that Paul is saying he gave gifts. You read the Old Testament, go in your Old Testament and look. Psalm 68, what is it, verse 18, right? It says he received gifts. So kind of what gives, you know what I mean? And so we we tend to look at everything with a very, you know, kind of scientific, you know, one plus one equals two kind of view. What I think is going on here as he deviates from the Hebrew and he goes with the Septuagint, I think what Paul is doing is that what he's saying is that the Septuagint fleshes out the typological fulfillment of that Hebrew text, Understand what I mean by that? In other words, what that text, that ancient text was talking about in terms of, of, of Christ receiving gift, let's say, is, is really what Paul is saying is that the reason he was gifted was to give. 
right? And so this is kind of a parallel idea to, let's say, Isaiah 53, verse 12, right, where you see the servant of the Lord dividing up the booty with the strong, right, dividing up the spoil with the people of God, right, in his victory, kind of the same kind of concept. So that's what I think he's doing. You can read tons of commentaries on that discrepancy, and I think that's the best thing that I can, anybody else come up with anything else with that? I wouldn't think so. I mean, this is a, diff, this is a hard one. Like, you gotta do some reading to look into this one. Uh, but it says, you know, he, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, uh, far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Why do you think Paul inserts that <laughs> in the midst of the practical section of everyone has a gift from the Lord? Right? Yes, sir, Mike. Mm-hmm. What's that? I, I mean, I don't think so. I think that's talking about. You know, I think that's talking about, you know, a, a coming deliverer, a redeemer, a, a leader of God's people, right? Christ, who is going to, uh, uh, really kind of, you know, celebrate the triumph and the victory and the vindication with his people. I don't think it's talking about imparting salvation. I mean, I think that's something that, I think it's something that happens after salvation, what he's talking about there. Well, you know that because Ephesians is telling us. <laughs> it's saved people that he gifts. Gifts to, you know what I mean? Anybody else? Anybody else have an idea why he wants to use this passage of scripture? I'm not even sure that I know. I'm just asking the question. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's, I think one thing that it accomplishes is by talking to one, the, the descent of the giver, what he's showing us is that, again, remember the whole purpose of this section is unity. So how does, how does that passage there how does that provide the unity of the church or how does it produce or promote the unity of the church anybody yeah that's right that's part of it you know he is he is he stands in solidarity with all of us right He's the one who unites us and so I think this is just his way about speaking about redemption. Right? Because he's focusing on two aspects of Christ's life that are, uh, the, really the heart and soul of the gospel. It's an interesting way to talk about the heart and soul of the gospel. There's two aspects of the gospel. There's two aspects of the life of Christ. What, um, anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> That's right. So his humility, right? And what else? His exaltation. Right? And why are these important? Right? Because these are what are known as the two states of Christ. Right? And that is what you find throughout the gospel, um, when the gospel's defined. Uh, haven't we talked about this before? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, can you think of a verse that captures both the humility and exaltation of Jesus? Uh, Jeffrey. Philippians chapter 2. Very good. Uh, 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Any passage of scripture where the author explicitly says that these two estates is the gospel. Read that for us. You picked the hard way. I want to see how you're able to. <laughs> you're on the right verse, but I want to see if you've got the right uh, way of interpreting that. Because it's not as... Pl- it, Romans chapter 1, everyone. Right? Again, why are we focusing on this? Well, because Ephesians chapter 4 is focusing on this. It's talking about his, it's talking about the fact that he descended and ascended. Nobody questions what ascending means, right? What does it mean for Christ to ascend? What is the, what does the ascension speak of? Right? It speaks of his exaltation, right? He is ascending up to heaven, right? To the place of highest exalted enthronement, right? So then what is the opposite of that? What is descent? Right? That speaks of his humility. There's no question about that. Coming to the lower parts of the earth. Right? Um, go ahead. Um, so, uh, reading and starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 from Romans, Paul, a volunteer of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, uh, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture mm-hmm. uh, concerning his son, who was born of, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, um, and so this is this is speaking about his humiliation, that mm-hmm. his line that he would come down. That's right. Uh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, that's right. Because he says, right, set apart for the gospel, mm-hmm. right, for the gospel of God, and then he defines that, which he promised that he promised the gospel. Where did he promise it? Well, he promised it beforehand. Where? Through the prophets in the scriptures. You see that? And, and, and what is this gospel about? Well, it's about, it's about Jesus Christ because he says, right, concerning his son. Isn't that amazing, you guys? We're talking about define the gospel. What's the gospel? And the gospel for the first four verses has everything to do with the son. Nothing to do with us. Notice that? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is how, you know, God saved us because we needed him and, you know, that's how we usually start the gospel, right? Paul starts the gospel and he says, ah, the gospel is concerning his son. So the first aspect of the gospel is Christological, right? And therefore, when he came in the flesh, I say you can, you know, I, and I've done this before, where you contrast according to the flesh, speaking of his incarnation, how do you know that's the state of humility? Because look at what it's contrasted with. It's like flesh. And what's the contrast, guys? Yeah. In... Power. See that? So he obviously goes from a state of weakness, incarnate flesh, right? Uh, humanity. Well, he never, he's, yeah, he's still man in power, but what I'm saying is that he's gone from one session to the next. He went from his earthly session, this is earth, to his heavenly session, right? And uh, one is the sphere of the flesh, not sin, careful, right? Because the Greek word 
right? Sarks does not always mean sin. Sometimes it just means body. Uh, sometimes it speaks of humanity, right? All of that. So here, flesh is speaking about his humanity, and it's contrasted with power, dunamis. So he went from weak flesh to exalted power, right? And that's exactly what Paul is saying in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's go back there before we completely go back to go backwards into biblical theology all over again. And <laughs> you guys know I'm doing that, so you're like, you always do this. But that's exactly what it is. He descended, he led a cap, a, he led captive a host of captives. So of course that's talking about Israel, uh, because if you look at Psalm 68, especially I think it's the beginning of verse 7, Verse 5, he begins to recap the history of Israel going all the way back to the Exodus and what happens uh, as they go into possession of the land and even talks about what happened when they arrived at Sinai, the mountain, right? So he's definitely thinking the history of Israel and their captivity and how he led those captives, captive if you would, right? So what is that talking about when when he's using this the way he's using it? Then what does that mean about the, the event of the Exodus, I mean, think about the way that Paul is using Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is right in the context of Exodus language. So what does that mean about Exodus or the Exodus? What did that event symbolize? Freedom. Yeah, redemption, right? It it symbolizes, you know, we go from a national historical plane to a spiritual salvific plane. You see that? And that's the way the authors of scripture move. They move from the, from the, that's why, you know, the, the, the hermeneutics that we use in our church is redemptive historical hermeneutics. It's not simply enough to use a grammatical historical hermeneutic, right? It's not just enough to know what did the original author mean by the words that he said? What is the grammar on the page? What does that mean, right? We also understand that the, that the Bible itself is using those passages of Scripture, watch this now, in redemptive historical fashion. What does that mean? It develops the story. And by developing the story, it develops the theology until we arrive at Christ. You see that? Any questions about that? I mean, redemptive historical hermeneutics are big. This is this is big, you know. Um you know, Jared just gave me the new systematic theology by John MacArthur and Dick Mayhew from the Master's Seminary. Well, one of the things that you're going to find in that systematic theology, which is a great system, I'm, I'm going to use that all the time. I've been waiting for that to come out. But one of the things they argue for in that systematic theology is a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic only. Only. And I would agree with the grammatical, historical interpretation, but not only. Right? I think... um I think that I would go, you know, into more of a reformed hermeneutic, which is a redemptive historical. You know, what's ironic about that is that last year at the Shepherds Conference, right after one of the guys spoke, MacArthur or somebody, John, uh, uh, Albert Moeller gets up on stage and he teaches his sermon and he says, I don't know how to interpret the Bible apart from a redemptive historical hermeneutic. <laughs> I just thought this is so funny. Anyway. Made some master seminary students uncomfortable, but whatever. Everybody know why I'm bringing that up? Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, I 
It's part of it. It's, it's part of it, but I think it's deficient. For example, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Where in that verse do you see the, re- a grammatical, literal reference to Christ? You do not. Not if you just go by the grammar, right? But we understand that the way the story develops is that we follow the seed of the woman and then we trace that seed through Abraham, through David, until we arrive at Christ, who is the one who crushes the serpent's head, who reverses the curse. Revelation chapter, what is it, 22, right? He takes the curse away. He defeats the, the old serpent, the devil, right? What does Paul say? I think it's in Romans chapter 16. I think it's verse 20 where he says, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. All that imagery is loaded Christologically. But if you just go with Genesis 3.15 and just exegete the grammar, it doesn't give you that. So, I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to divulge into... Just go back and listen to my Sunday schools on biblical theology, which may raise more questions than not. But um, but again, let's be very clear what we're saying. We are not saying, and I made this very clear in biblical theology, what we're not saying is we do not interpret the Bible uh, grammatically, historically. I would take umbrage with the term literal. I think it's kind of irresponsible to use the word literal because the Bible is made up of dozens of genres that are not to be taken literal. You know what I'm saying? So we have to allow for the genres of Scripture to speak. Not everything in the Bible is to be taken literal. You know what I mean? Um, matter of fact, Paul says that himself. I'm speaking metaphorically or allegorically in the book of Galatians. <laughs> right? So he's saying that there is some sort of allegory. There's an analogous relationship to the literal historical mountain of Sinai. The literal Jerusalem to the heavenly one. Right? So, I don't know, we can talk. You want to go to dinner? Let's go to dinner, man. We'll talk all night about this. <laughs> you know, I love this stuff. Um, where has, cause this, this is talking about the ascension. Where in the indicative of the letter has the apostle Paul already talked about exaltation? Where? Right, you guys go back. What, what is the indicative of the letter? Chapter one through three. Right. So where up to this point has Paul already talked about exaltation language? Right. Anyone? Okay, let's turn there. Chapter one. Let's begin at verse 19. Keep going. Keep read, read it to uh, go, go all the way to verse 23. Mm. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he mm. put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a perfect parallel, right? Look back to chapter 4, verse, uh, verse uh, 10. He who descended is himself also he who ascended, watch this, far above all the heavens, so that 
he might fill all things. Same thing, right? So that he might be all in all, so that he might fill all things. That's interesting. That's not at all talking about pantheism, right? But that just means that, you know, Jesus Christ comes into his heavenly session where he becomes, you know, the, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the God man, the exalted God man who presides over all things. You see what I'm saying? So it's really remarkable language. Yeah. All power and authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, right? So exactly what Ephesians is telling us is that in the heavens, in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms, Jesus Christ has all authority. And if 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say, we may not see that yet, right? We may not see it, but he does have it, right? We're just waiting to see the fulfillment of it. What is the fulfillment of that? What is that? What is the fulfillment of Jesus' exaltation? What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the end of Islam. It looks like the end of Hinduism. It looks like the end of Buddhism. It looks like the end of his enemies. It's over. 